you know, it strikes me just as you gave the little introduction there, it's still, even after two years and more, it still doesn't feel normal to hear the death of your son. And that little phrase, the sacred circle of the sorrowing, is just a wonderful little phrase that somebody actually used in a letter to Kyler after his son Georgie um, passed away. She just said, I'm sorry that you're part of this sacred circle, people who have lost a child and are bound together in this community where nobody wants to be called to this circle, but here we are, and how are we going to serve the Lord through? For quite a long time, I really couldn't sing in church because I would just weep, I would just cry. There's something about truth set to wonderful melodies that just stirs the heart. Ultimately, God did this. That was our conviction from the very beginning. It was nobody's will but God that Nick would live for as long as he did and go to be with Jesus when he did. And it's been our, our blessing then just to bow the knee to the Lord and say, he has done well. Welcome to The Afterword, a conversation on books, reading, and the church. Uh, this is a podcast from Westminster Bookstore, and my name's Johnny Gibson, and I'm your host. And I want to welcome today uh, Tim Chalice, who's joining us uh, for this interview. Uh, Tim Chalice is known to many of us as a keen reader of books and uh, a blogger. Uh, in fact, you're probably one of the pioneers of the um, Christian blogosphere, I know tens of thousands of people visit your website, chalice.com, each day, uh, making it one of the most widely read and uh, recognized Christian blogs in the world. Uh, you've written numerous books. Um, you, you live with your family uh, in uh, Ontario, Canada. And uh, today we're going to chat about this uh, very moving book called Seasons of Sorrow, uh, the moving and tragic account of your son Nick's death uh, on November 3rd, 2020. And this is your journey in and with grief uh, since Nick's death. Uh, let me just say, first of all, uh, Tim, that I'm so sorry that your beautiful boy, Nick, died so suddenly on that tragic day. And um, my sincere sympathies to you and your wife and daughters. Um, but thank you for being willing to come on and uh, to chat. Um, for those unfamiliar with what happened, would you mind sharing about the events of that day and what led to the writing of this book? Yeah, well, thank you for being willing to talk about it. And, you know, it strikes me just as you gave the little introduction there. It's still, even after two years and more, still doesn't feel normal to hear the death of your son. It's, it's, you know, I've written a whole book about it and yet somehow it still almost strikes me by surprise. But, um, what happened is November 3rd, 2020, Nick was, um, he was a seminary student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, also a college student at Boys College, which is the undergraduate school there at Southern. And uh, he was out with his sister and his fiance and uh, a good number of friends. They were just playing a game together out of the, the dorms there. And uh, just very suddenly he collapsed and was gone. Um, his heart had slipped into an unsustainable rhythm and he collapsed. And there was nothing that could be done for him at that point because the appropriate equipment was not available there in a, in a playing field. And so um, November 3rd, 2020, the Lord took him and uh, that entered us then into this season of sorrow that I write about in the book. And where were you and Elaine at the time, and uh, how did you get to hear about this tragic news? Yeah, so uh, Nick went to school in Louisville, Kentucky. We live in just outside Toronto, Ontario, Canada, so he was a good distance away, and if you rewind a little bit, it was the time uh, fairly early on in the COVID-19 pandemic when borders were still closed and uh, travel was very difficult, very sparse. And so it was a very difficult time even to be to be separated. It was forbidden at that point to drive into the United States, for example. So uh, we couldn't rush down by car as we wish to do. Um, but we, we received the news first, just some text messages, people saying, hey, something happened with Nick, and then phone calls began, and then Eventually, we heard from a doctor who had been uh, at the emergency room there that they had done everything they could, but unfortunately, were not able to revive him. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, 
you speak in the book that as you traveled down from uh, Toronto to Louisville, you started to actually write, um, you started to process your thoughts. What was it that was making you want to do that? And how did you find that process? If, uh, fortunately, though, we couldn't drive down. We did manage to find a flight down. So we were able to head down that evening, especially to be with Abby, who was um, my daughter, who was down there and who had witnessed all this unfold. And I started to write because writing is really how I process things. I have a lot of trouble holding much information in my mind at a time. And so through writing, I, I process things and I can get my thoughts down and refine them and really come to terms with, with what I believe and uh, initially, I had to write just something I could send out on the blog so I could let people know what had happened. And then um, soon after that, I had to write a little obituary and I had to write a speech for his funeral. For his, uh, There's both a memorial service and a funeral, so I had to write for that. And then just from that, I think I developed this this habit of writing out my my thoughts and just trying to process things, essentially meditating on what had happened and uh, what I believed about it um, simply through the written word. And so a little bit of that I shared through the blog, much of it I did not. And then I just kept on that writing throughout the year. And it was really a, a year of writing, as if I've understood right in the book, and then that's what has been published. So it's basically your diary of reflections and thoughts about how to process Nick's death in in one year period. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So it begins mm -hmm. literally the night that we learned the news mm -hmm. and it ends on the first anniversary of Nick's death. And as you were writing, uh, you're saying that that was your way of processing it. Um, writers uh, find it hard to write on the best of days and even harder to write on the worst of days with writer's block, etc., what was that like for you as a writer compared to writing your other books? Did it come easy because things were so raw and vivid and in the moment for you? Or actually, did you find it quite hard to write something down, even though you were finding that helpful in your grief? Yeah, I think I found it quite a lot easier than my other books. And part of that was there's just so much on my mind and in my heart. I had so many ideas or so many um, things that I needed to ponder. And again, pondering them through writing is the way I do it. And so uh, really throughout the year, I never developed writer's block in the sense that there's just so much there. And so as much as anything, there was a whole folder of ideas I had written down, things I wanted to think through, uh, just little bits, little pieces of information. And many of them I returned to, but many of them I did not even today. And some of them I think were worth pondering, others were not. Mm. And as you were writing this, was a book beginning to form in your mind or was it too early for that? Yeah, it was definitely too early in the early days. I think it was probably four or five months in that I, I began to think that maybe there would be a book here. And part of my, my rationale there was um, – uh, maybe a month or two after Nick's death, I started reading. Before then, I really couldn't bring myself to read anything. But I went went back in time a little bit, especially to, um, of all things, Presbyterians from the late 1800s. I found several of them who had written just excellent books on grief, on suffering, on sorrow. And I really just spent so much time reading their works, thousands of pages of it. And through that, I realized there really can be a ministry of recording these things and then sharing them with other people. And uh, what I found myself doing was a real-time perspective on grief, just literally writing these things through as I experienced them. And so this is not a prescriptive book, here's what to do with your grief. This is a descriptive book, here's one man's journey through the loss of a child and what came to my mind, what, what burdened my heart and and so on. Yeah, I think that's what I really liked about as I was reading it, I, it was very much in the present tense. I could picture you in certain places in the Rocky Mountains by Nick's grave, uh, in your home. Uh, and I felt very much sort of in the moment with you uh, as you were writing. Uh, I want to come back to the Presbyterians who influenced you and, and comforted you. Uh, one of them, Thomas Smythe, is from Belfast. I went to the same school as Thomas Smythe uh, in Belfast. Um, but I, I want to come back to those kinds of people who helped you in your process. But just to stay on the 
on the book, on the content. It's called Seasons of Sorrow. Uh, it's no surprise then that you order the book according to the four seasons, beginning with fall, winter, spring, summer. Uh, when, when did that idea of seasons begin to sort of formulate in your mind? Yeah, uh, so the seasons are very literal in the sense that Nick died in the fall and we then moved into winter spring, summer, obviously. Um, and so it does add that, if you will, narrative flow, but also progression. Um, but then the seasons, at least in this neck of the woods and um, many others, they, they really do have symbolic value as well. So when we think of fall, we're thinking of a season in which things are getting worse, not better. And then winter, we think of it being austere cold stark and then spring comes with some promise and then summer is the the season of flourishing and so i think um as the seasons passed there was that symbolic value attached to each one of them as well and and in that way i think they they helpfully followed the the process of grief that we all go through and we we are in a time of sorrow and that the the, the first days are extremely difficult, but probably the most difficult days are the ones that follow right after when the sense of numbness and shock wears off. But then you begin to see glimmers of hope and and eventually at some point you find that you've discovered a new normal. You, you don't go back to who you were and obviously you're a changed person on the other side of a great loss, but you do find this new normal and realize you're again experiencing joys and um, that you really you really can carry this burden that God equips you to. Yeah, as I was reading some of your chapters, you speak about, you know, the the sharpness of the pain in the early days that then changed over time um, to become a dull ache. And just hearing you speak about matching that to the seasons, I hadn't actually thought of that. But of course, it it fits actually beautifully in a bittersweet way with um, your journey, that the seasons actually matched your journey in grief. And I think that's one of the things that comes out really well in the book. As you were writing it, were there particular places or times in the day or week that you find it helpful to write? Did you find a certain kind of rhythm or a certain place that you wanted to go to write? Mm -hmm. First, I just want to circle back to something you said, which is that the book is written in the present tense. And I'm glad you picked up on that. I don't know that many, many do, but I think that adds that real-time urgency to it. And that wasn't a decision I made as much as just a reflection of reality. And I can't think of too many books that are written in the present tense. And so it was a, an interesting thing as an author to to write that way. Um, as for writing, yeah, my, my habits are well established now, having written so much for so long. And so I've got my little office down here where I am now, and this is where I do my writing, where I love to do my writing, where I do the great majority of it. And so I just close the basement door. I'm down here by myself. And uh, this is this is where I do it. And uh, usually the writing comes pretty quickly if I'm in the right time of day, you know, start my day right, get down here. Then usually I have two hours or so where I can just really create good, good material. And after that, things slow down dramatically. Yeah. Uh, in the book, you speak about a ministry of sorrow, that the book in itself is a kind of ministry of sorrow. You have a chapter title called Stewarding Sorrow, and then you quote one of these Presbyterian uh, men, Theodore Kyler. Kyler? How do you pronounce that surname? I think you, I think you got it, yep. That's how I pronounce Theodore it. Theodore Kyler. Uh, and he uses the phrase, the sacred circle of the sorrowing. Um, can you unpack some of those terms? What what do you mean by ministry of sorrow, stewarding sorrow, and the sacred circle of the sorrowing? Yeah, I, I was raised around creeds and catechisms. I was raised in sort of a hybrid Dutch reform slash Presbyterian background. And so catechisms are always close at hand. And um, from my early days, I had a very profound belief um, in the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God over matters up to and including life and death, you know, all things. And so as as reformed folk, we we tend to associate sovereignty with election and, and focus there. But of course we need to broaden it and um and attach sovereignty to all things, including matters of life and death. And so when Nick died, I just I, I knew that this was God's will, that that God is the one who had ultimately taken Nick to himself. And 
once I, once I understood that, and then once I understood the character of God, um, or just focus on the character of God as, as described so well in the catechisms, I also knew that God was, was good, that God was kind, that God was loving, that God had done no wrong. And when I put those things to th- those two things together, God's sovereignty and, and God's goodness, all I could do then was conclude that, that God had done something something important, something meaningful in taking Nick. And he hadn't done, he hadn't done something arbitrary or something cruel. And so I, all I could do was accept this from his hand and, um, and then accept that God had called me to some new kind of duty in this. I was going to accept this and embrace this and let it work out in, in love for God and service to other people. And, um, so that's what I, I call the ministry of sorrow or the stewardship of sorrow or suffering is that God is, God has a body here on earth and, and he's fitting. He's um, made up of different parts and each one of us has a part to play. And, and God calls us to different ministries within that. And uh, I'm not talking ministries in the, the public sense of, um, you know, going out there and, and serving people far beyond, but right in the local church, right in the neighborhood, being able to reach out to people and bring them the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. And that little phrase, the sacred circle of the sorrowing, is just a wonderful little phrase that somebody actually used in a letter to Kyler after his son Georgie um, passed away. She just said, I'm sorry that you're part of this sacred circle, people who have lost a child and are bound together in this community where nobody wants to be called to this circle, but here we are. And how are we going to serve the Lord through it? Yeah. And I I pray and hope and believe that this book will be a great ministry to others. So thank you for inviting us into that very intimate year in your life as you went through that process of grieving for Nick um, after his death. Um the secret circle of the sorrowing. Um, it's always struck me that there's no word in the English language for a parent whose child dies. Um, you know, a, a spouse can lose a spouse and uh, it's a widow or a widower. Uh, if a child loses both parents, they're an orphan. Um, but a parent who loses a child, there's no actual word for it. And I wonder if that is sort of um, not... Um, accidental that in some ways it's hard to actually describe what it is i think it's death sort of doubly warped we tend to expect in a fallen world for um us to grow up and our parents to grow up and they die first and we we lay them to rest but when it's done the other way around uh, it feels like death inverted uh, in a way even in a fallen world death is always an enemy and we're always to rage against it and yet to a certain extent, we've accepted the general order in a fallen world, but the death of a child is, and I wonder if that's what that person was getting at to Theodore Kyler, that you have entered a secret circle of soaring that's utterly unique to other kinds of death uh, in the family. Um, You also quote Spurgeon. Uh, I'm going to read this quote. The singularity of sorrow is a dream of the sufferer. Uh, do you want to unpack what really grabbed you about that quote and how you've sort of sensed an application of it in your own life? Yeah, that was maybe a few months into into our grief. And I read that quote by Spurgeon and sort of took it as a, a bit of a slap across the face in the best way, you know, uh, wake up from your slumber. And at a time when I was very prone to feel sorry for myself and very prone to sink into self-pity, Spurgeon's word was, you may feel like you're alone in your suffering, but just get out of yourself a little bit, look around, and you'll see that there are vast numbers of people who are carrying this same burden or even much more grievous ones. And you've entered into this, this community of fellow sufferers. And then he calls us to look ahead and see at the front of the line, Jesus Christ himself suffering on our behalf. And um, so, so what he's calling us to then is getting away from self-pity, but just moving into this community of people who have suffered and um, carrying out our, our duty um, before them. And man, I found that so challenging and so helpful. I was just so thankful to have encountered those words. And, uh, you know, I, circling back to what you said, I've, I've never actually pondered the fact, and I 
It's absolutely true. There is no word to describe a parent who has lost a child. Um, and we do accept it as the natural order of things that parents um, go before their children, which the way it should be, really. And But I think um, what, what I found so helpful and why I wanted to go back in time was what's so unusual today, which is for children to, to die before their parents, was not nearly as unusual in days past. And that's where going to those older authors was so, so helpful, because that's where I found uh, my initial community of people who had experienced this loss and written about it and offered these deep, wonderful reflections that were just such a blessing to me. Yeah, I saw that as you, uh, at the end of the book, you speak about, if I could use that phrase again, that sacred circle, you, your sacred circle were 19th century Presbyterians. Um, you speak about others, J.R. Miller, F.B. Meyer, Theodore Kyler, Thomas Smythe, P.B. Parr, Thomas DeWitt, Domal, uh, Talmage, John Flavel. And then on page 127, you also name a, a number of others, uh, David and Mary Livingston, William and Dorothy Carey, Hudson and Maria Ta Taylor, Fanny Crosby, Matthew Henry, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, uh, Lemuel Hines, Selena Hastings, Frederick Douglass, George Muller, uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther. Uh, I've been to um, St. Mary's in Wittenberg and stood at his daughter's grave, 14-year-old girl, I think she was, Lena, Magdalena, who died, and I wanted to find her headstone in the church, which is there. So you have this just this long, uh, this litany of people who have gone before you having suffered this same tragic experience. What was it about those older writers that really helped you in that year of grief? Well, first, I think it was simply that they had been there. And so they had firsthand knowledge of this loss. And second, that they had still proved useful to the Lord after this loss. So there, there may be a sense in the early days that this is it. I, I'm, I'm out of the race. I'll never recover from this. And yet here were all these people who had recovered from it or ha who had pressed on in love and service to the Lord. Then third, that they had all died and gone to be with their loved ones. <laughs> Just a reminder that this life is short. And at the end, if we're in Christ, our children are in Christ, we will have that that great reunion that surely each one of them has experienced. And um, uh, I guess the last one was that they weren't sitting around in self-pity and um, they were calling me to duty. So they weren't, they weren't therapeutic. They weren't uh, just wanting to coddle me in my grief, though certainly they sympathized. But there was a lot of that call of, look, if you really believe in God's sovereignty, then you'll accept this from God and you'll press on this. You won't allow this to take you out of things. And I just really, really needed that call. And it came at just the right time. There, there, there was just such a practical bent to their counsel. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Smythe's uh, writings are uh, Solace to Bereaved Parents. Is that, have I got the title right there? And uh, yes. What, the, what about Theodore Kyler's uh, work? What's it titled? So Kyler and others, their their work was written often for newsletters and then was mm. repackaged in many different ways. So it's really hard to figure out exactly where to find it. You more have to look for chapters, which are actually, actually just articles gleaned from, this was the age of periodicals, okay. so gleaned from some of those periodicals. Yeah. Um, Similar to Spurgeon sermons in that way. A lot of his material yeah. was just sermons. Yeah. So it's relatively short form. Yeah. You don't find it in books so much. Yeah. So they, these men and women were obviously a help to you. Uh, what, what parts of scripture uh, came to be meaningful for you in this time? Yeah. I think more than anything else was Psalm 23, which, um, you know, on the one hand, might almost sound cliche, but on the other hand, where else would you go in your your great sorrow than to Psalm 23? This is wonderful psalm of um, enduring these dark valleys and emerging on the far side. Mm -hmm. And just that sense, I'd preached it a number of years ago. And one of the things I had focused on was the shepherd is leading you into the valley. Mm -hmm. And that was so precious to me in this time of grief is that this isn't the lost sheep of uh, Luke. 15, 16, 15, I think. Um, it's not the lost sheep that wandered off and the shepherds had to go and bring him back. He's gotten himself in trouble. 
This is the shepherd leading his sheep through the valley of the shadow of death so he can get to, to the beauty, to the, the lands beyond. And God does do that. He does lead us through these times. So I found that a huge comfort. And then honestly, just pondering the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ and understanding that the most evil thing that has ever happened in all of human history happened right there on the cross. And yet that's the very thing that brought about the greatest good in all of human history. There's been no greater glory than what was accomplished there. And then arguing from the the greater to the lesser. So if God can use the greatest of all evils to bring about the greatest of all goods, then surely God can be active even in this, this sorrow, this loss, which feels and really is so sore, so pronounced. Surely God can use it and bring glory to himself in ways I'll see right away in ways I may not see for a very long time or until I'm in glory. Mm. Oh, so helpful. Um, Psalm 23, I preached it earlier this year, and one of the things struck me was that the the middle line of the 20 lines uh, of that psalm in poetry is, for you are with me. And uh, it's it's right at the heart and the center of, of the psalm. It's a lovely comfort. Yeah. Um, what hymns or psalms, we mentioned Psalm 23, but what hymns um, during your time of grief came to you that you wanted to sing, that you loved to sing in church as a comfort for what you were experiencing? For quite a long time, I really couldn't sing in church because I would just weep. I would just cry. There's something about truth set to wonderful melodies that just stirs the heart. And it was really quite a long time um, before we could do that. But songs like We Will Feast in the House of Zion was was wonderful. Um, it is well with my soul, so precious, so true. And just that line, when sorrows like sea billows roll, and we found that to be our experience. There were, there were the, the peaks of the waves and there were the troughs, you know, times when you can barely breathe and times when things seem okay as well. Um, But we are so well, so well resourced in the, as 21st century English speaking Christians, there's a song for every occasion and oftentimes a hundred or 200 songs for every occasion. So I'd often just scroll through long playlists. And another one that was just so precious to me was Handel's Messiah, which is sort of the soundtrack to so much of my life, but just listening to that and just weeping my way Mm -hmm. through the, the, the wonderful wonderful words uh, that are set to just beautiful music there was, was tremendously encouraging as well. And you weave Handel's Messiah through one of your chapters quite beautifully. And uh, I want to come back to that because I want to talk to you a bit later about uh, visiting Nick's grave. And um, I, I want to, I'll come back to that. Um, what I wanted to ask was um, what, what have you learned about God that you knew about abstractly, theoretically, but now you sort of know at a experiential level. You know, I'm thinking of Job's words. Yeah. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Has Have there been aspects of God and his character that has been that experience for you? Certainly, yeah. And I think the main one would be just God's power that God is so tremendously powerful that he can work in this world, however he sees fit up to, and including taking a young man to himself for reasons that are indiscernible. We don't know. He doesn't reveal. God didn't show up in my life and ask permission or tip me off that this is going to happen. He just took. And yeah, we knew God was, we knew God was strong and we knew that God had good purposes, but it was, after seeing God take Nick that we had, that we realized just how strong and how powerful he was. And after that, that we really had to, um, to ponder that our God's purpose is really good. Can we believe in this, that God is up to good things? Even when things happen in our lives, it seems so very bad and like it couldn't possibly be good that that comes from it. So um, I, I was on the radio with a, uh, another man a little while ago who lost a child as well. And he said that in the aftermath of that, he didn't revoke his faith, but he did have to renovate his faith a little bit. And I appreciated his words because I think on the, on the back of something like that, we really do have to just ponder God again and just sort of 
start from the ground up and think, are these things true? Do I still believe these things? And uh, I think it's a very healthy process. It's not throwing away the faith. It's not deconstructing. It's just just looking at it again and just coming to this new assessment based on new information that, that as you said, really has become true in a personal way now mm-hmm. rather than a more abstract way. Yeah, and I think for those of us in the Reformed world who love our doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of God, um, an experience like this and knowing people who have experienced something like this, it, it takes the the sovereignty of God to a whole new level, uh, that it's not just this raw determinism that's at work in the world, that it is God who is all-powerful and can do something terrifyingly sovereign in our lives, um, but he's also good at the same time. And, and I think for for Reformed folk, it's, it's a reminder that there needs to be a tenderness to the sovereignty of God uh, rather than just viewing it as this sort of abstract uh, concept which uh, can be sort of said in quite stark terms, but to actually uh, think experientially about what that actually means in each of our lives as well. And I think you've you've displayed that really wonderfully in your book. You, you speak in one chapter about you believe God is sovereign but God can be sovereign and capricious, or he could be sovereign and capricious, and that would be no good. <laughs> uh, but God is sovereign and good, and I think it's in your chapter, God is good all the time, that you needed to affirm the sovereignty of God, but you also needed to hear that other truth, that the God who is sovereign is also always good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so God's sovereignty is wonderful, but we can't ever abstract it from God's character. God's sovereignty is consistent with his character. And really God's God's sovereignty is acted out through his character. And uh the, the two can never be separated. And were there aspects of the Lord Jesus that you saw in a new light? Um I'm thinking of Isaiah fifty three, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Um, lo- that lovely yeah. hymn, whose uh, uh, grief, whose uh, who every grief hath known, that rings the human breast. Were there aspects of Christ that became more precious for you? Uh, yeah, very much so. So, just found myself often in awe of the fact, and just praying to God and, and thanking Him for the fact that He He truly can sympathize with us because God became man. And what a, what a wonder that that Jesus entered into this world. He took on flesh. He entered into this world, and he experienced what we experience. And so, pondering the Son of God standing outside the tomb of his dear friend and and weeping, he understands what it is to to experience loss. He understands what it is to 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 weep and to cry, to mourn. And I, I found it so wonderful, so comforting to think of. God incarnated. That was, uh, that is a miracle, and it was one that was very much on my heart. Mm. You spoke about Christ standing outside the grave of Lazarus. Uh, in the book, you speak about visiting Nick's grave. Uh, the routine for these past two years is to be is to go every Sunday afternoon uh, to visit. Uh, I love at one point you say we visit Nick. We don't just visit his grave. And um, you also, in the book, put in letters that you've written to Nick since he died. And, of course, you're not suggesting that you and Nick have some communication back and forth. Uh, but I think it's quite beautiful in in a bittersweet way seeing your grief for your son, actually longing for relationship with him, longing to talk to him. So you write these letters to him. Um, and then you you make coffees for him sometimes. You take those to the grave. Uh, but you go to the grave every week. Um, I think it's a wonderful thing. Why do you go? Yeah. It, it, some of these things are kind of silly, you know, taking a coffee. And yet they're, they're meaningful mm-hmm. in their own way. Um, in that I loved to love my boy. I love to serve my boy and uh, to be able to just take in these little gifts, which I know mean nothing to him, but mean a lot to me. It's still just a way that I feel like I can relate to him or recapture some of those memories. And, you know, as time has gone on, some of those things have faded a little bit and we feel 
less need, or I feel less need to be at the cemetery quite as often. I still sort of feel that after a few days, oh, I should go over there, and it's still a blessing to go, and everything's the same. You know, not much changes there, but it's still just good to to go. And um, yeah, it's it's a ha- it. The reason I want to be there is because that feels like the closest point of contact between Nick and between me. And the the Bible attaches great significance to the human body. And um, there is where Nick's body has been laid. And there I trust where Nick's body will rise from. I don't know. I'm assuming something like that. So I I think part of it is I'm hoping that I'll just happen to be there at the time of resurrection when that should come. Um, be Be in that spot. But it's uh, it's just a way I I go and often just whisper a quick prayer to the Lord and uh, yeah, take little gifts. It's meaningful in its own interesting way. Yeah, I've, a couple of things you've said there. I want to touch on and keep talking about, if that's okay. You, you mentioned the the body matters. Uh, I think as Christians, we can tend to be quite Platonist when it comes to the soul and the body and, you know, with Christ, which is far better. The soul goes to be with Christ at the moment of death, as it was the case for Nick. He entered into that glorious presence of his Savior, Uh, but his body remained. And we can sometimes tend to think, well, that's far better. We don't need to worry about the remains here. But, uh, you know, it's far better, but it's not yet best. Uh, He is awaiting his resurrection from that grave. And, um, which means that that grave is not just a place of memoriam. It's just, you know, we tend to think of graveyards as memorialists, like memorialists, like a Sphinglian sort of view of the Lord's Supper. We're just remembering nothing more is going on here. But but the grave is a sacred place where he's going to come out of that grave with his resurrection body. I think it's uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow calls the grave, the God's acre, which I think you've put Mm -hmm. in a a supplementary little book of material that didn't go in this book, which I thought was a lovely description that this is, this is God's patch and he's planted a seed and he's watering it and he's waiting for it to grow and come out. Um, Another comment I once heard at a graveside was that the enduring hope of the Christian faith is not the immortality of the soul, but the resurrection of the body. Uh, and I think what you're saying there sort of resonates with that, that um, it is really a sacred place and a place of significance for you. Um, you. You speak there about you feel closest to Nick when you're there. Oh, sorry, one other comment. You, you speak about you feel closest to Nick, not to Nick's body. And one of the things that's always struck me in the Gospels is reading about how they describe Jesus's body between Good Friday evening and Easter Sunday morning. And they don't really speak about it. They sometimes refer to it. Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus's body from the cross and wrapped it in linen. But then it will say and laid him in the tomb. And John's the most explicit. They laid Jesus in the grave. You know, and I and so I, I think actually it's theologically accurate to speak about going to visit somebody at their grave, um, because the body is also that person, not just the soul. But I was wanted to touch on your comment about feeling close to Nick there, and in your chapter where you weave Handel's Messiah, in you're you're asking the question: How far away is Nick? How close is he? Um, does he know what's going on? Could you talk to him? Could he hear you? Is there a piece of paper between you both or is there granite stone between you? Um, yeah. What's that been like as you process theologically this connection between heaven and earth, between the church triumphant in heaven and the church militant on earth? Have you thought much mm-hmm. about what actual connection there is between the two, between us and our loved ones who've gone before us? Yeah. One thing that I haven't had much time for is speculation. And you can find whole books of Christian speculation about um, heaven and earth and the connection between people and all of that. I just have not found that helpful to, to ponder the what ifs. I would get, um, 
I would get very little comfort out of whether Nick can see me or not, or whether Nick knows what's going on here or not, or whether time is passing at the same rate there or not. I think God leaves those things unsaid on the whole. There's little hints, there's little pieces of information here or there, but I just don't get a lot of joy out of speculation. I, I, I just want to focus on what God makes clear. And what's clear is that Nick is in heaven. I'm on earth. He's got his his things to do there. I've got my things to do here. And um, this is just a short, short little time I've got here. Just pondering Paul's words about this being a light momentary affliction. Um, that only makes sense if we ponder just how good and how long eternity is compared to here. Um, any other explanation would be cruel, but just feeling, okay, I, what I need here, I just need to endure this pain for this time. I'm going to carry out God's, whatever God's got for me. I'm going to do my best to be dutiful before him and be joyful before him, carry out my task here and go and be with Jesus and go and be with Nick. Um, I, I don't know if the church triumphant is, is paying attention to what we're doing here. If they're watching us, um, you know, my girls sometimes like to go to the cemetery and talk as if Nick can hear. And I think they know he probably can't. I uh, told them if he answers back, get out of there in a hurry. You know, just <laughs> it's one thing to go and just sort of <laughs> say words because they're they're helpful or therapeutic, yeah. but don't expect responses that mm -hmm. would be very concerning. Um, so there's some things we do because they help us. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe they're a little bit imaginative. But um, the Bible really doesn't give us maybe all the information we'd like. So let's just focus on what the Bible does tell us. And that's where we, how far away is he? He's just one blast of the trumpet away. He's just one cry of command away. He's just one second, one moment, because that's all it'll be between everything on this earth being pretty normal and then Christ returning. Mm. And I wonder if the Bible's lack of revelation, information about the connection between the two and what they know and what they how they interact or don't it, it it leaves us longing to go there to join them on that eternal shore whereas if we did have a lot of information on that and connection even that we were able to have on a day-to-day -day basis maybe it would lessen our desire to finish the race and and join them you know so i wonder if it's there to yeah. encourage us to keep living by faith and not by sight um yeah yeah, you, you talk at one point about the tension on seeing Nick again. You know, you talk about heaven has become more sweet to you. I always was sweet to you because you looked forward to seeing your Savior, the Lord Jesus. But you're also really looking forward to seeing Nick now, and you felt that tension. Do you, Some days do you long to see him more than, than Jesus? And do you want to just talk us through how that process has been for you? Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't have any, I mean, look, I, I want to go to heaven, same as any other Christian, but I haven't had a great longing to be there because earth has been so good. And we just need to be honest that, that as much as we, we talk about this, this earth being difficult and full of sorrow and full of sin, and as much as that's true, it can be pretty good. And our lives here are on the whole pretty good, at least for those of us in this time and and this place. And so, as we think about heaven, we can think, well, but there's so much I still want to do here. There's so much I'd like to accomplish or experience. And, and we can feel that, that tension um, or, you know, that, that Pauline tension of, I want to be in heaven, but I think God has things for me to carry out here uh, before I go there. Um, but since Nick's death, I've had a much deeper longing to be away from here and to be there. And so that's not a, you know, suicidal kind of longing, nothing I'm, I'm going to hasten that. But heaven has lost its fear or the process of death has lost its fear for me. Meanwhile, heaven has become all the more attractive. And as I read those old books, I found people saying that often that uh, those who have gone before and, and written about their experiences have just talked about how as their people pick up a move, as they move across these the Jordan, you know, they go and settle in that other land, they feel their own hearts bit by bit moving as well. And I think that was really comforting to me that, uh, that I wasn't alone here. And so, as I express in the book, I, I long to see Jesus. I long to see Nick. I'm not going to spend a ton of time trying to sort that out or parse that out, whether it's 50-50 or 60-40. 
um, the whole, it all comes together. I'm just longing to, to be free from sorrow, free from sin, free from suffering. And then in the presence of, of those I love and in the presence of the, the fullness of joy. Yeah, I'm thinking of two quotes um, that sort of capture that idea of a sort of reinvigorated desire to go to heaven. Samuel Rutherford, I remember, wrote to a, a young a woman who'd lost her young child. He said, God has cut off one of your branches so that you might grow higher and taller toward heaven. And then Thomas Watson said, when God puts a man on his back, it is so that he would look up to heaven. And uh, I think they sort of capture when sorrow and suffering come into our lives. It just reminds us we're pilgrims. This world is not our home. And, uh, you know, we have a celestial city to get to. And uh, it gives us new longings for that place. Um, I wanted to ask you about poetry. Just a few more questions. But uh, you quote Henry Wadsworth Longfellow a few times in the book and uh, also John Donne. Uh, what was it about these poets that has helped you? Yeah, poetry does something in the heart that prose often does not. And um, there's something about Longfellow and his expression of joy and grief. He suffered quite a lot in life and um, often uh, worked that out through his poetry, and there's just kind of a, a rawness and a realness in his words that went straight to the heart. And then done um, his death be not proud. I've read that poem a million times, memorized it, recited it. It's always been since I was a child or teenager, been very close to my heart. And um, and so it was already stored away, but now just being able to bring it out and recite it in these moments and to ponder its truths, and especially that great truth that. Death doesn't win in the end. That uh, death is the last enemy; will be the last to fall. That was so helpful to me. And uh, yeah, there were quite a number of other poems that I I found that in the late eighteen hundreds there was this there was so much poetry being passed around. People would write poems and submit them to periodicals, and others would answer those poems. And a lot of it wasn't all that good, um, but there was quite a lot that's never really been discovered beyond these anthologies, but speaks to, to really important matters of life and death, and it's really helpful to me. Yeah. I don't know if you w watched Her Majesty's funeral, Queen Elizabeth II's funeral, uh, but there was a lovely prayer by John Donne, which I would actually like to close this podcast in a few minutes using it that was read out at her um, internment service in uh, Windsor Castle, St. George's Chapel. Um, but uh, you'll see, uh, if you're not familiar with it and others listening, you'll see the beauty of John Donne's words and um, imagination about heaven and that gate of heaven and entering into heaven. Um, do you want to tell us about the scholarship fund that's been set up in Nick's uh, yeah. honor and memory and uh, that the I think if I'm understanding right the royalties from this book or some of them will be going to that scholarship fund so do you want to tell us about it and how people can give to it yeah um in the aftermath we had a number of people just get in touch and say what, what would you like to do um in order to remember Nick and um, one of the first thoughts was, well, what was so important to Nick was getting his theological training and then he intended to come back to Canada and serve as a pastor. He just wanted to be a pastor in a small church, not have a public facing side, just serve a little church. And uh, obviously the Lord didn't call him to that ministry, but we know he will call many more. And so we helped establish a scholarship fund, Charlie's Memorial Scholarship at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And it will go to students who are making a commitment to go to Canada or to come back to Canada if they're already Canadian, simply to take up gospel ministry here. And so, uh, portion of the proceeds from the book goes to that, and then people can give by just going to the Southern, ba uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary site and uh, donating there. And that would be a, a lovely thing to do already. It's gone out to quite a number of students, and uh, all of whom would share our theological convictions. And it's been a joy to get to meet them and hear how the Lord's using it. Yeah, I think it's a lovely thing you've done, and uh, comes back to that phrase you used earlier in the book, a ministry of sorrow. It's, it's a ministry now to others, the way you're stewarding your sorrow uh, as a gift to others that they might serve in the way Nick had longed to serve. So I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, as I was reading the book, uh, a quote by John Brown, 
came to me and I wrote it down, um, speaking about children dying. He says they died at the commandment of the Lord. They would willingly have stayed, but they gladly went. And uh, I thought that sort of encompasses the very sad but beautiful story of your son's death and your experience that he died at the commandment of the Lord. Uh, he would willingly have stayed, uh, but he also gladly went. And uh, I, I think that sort of encapsulates this wonderful book that you've written. So I hope um, people will pick up the book, Seasons of Sorrow, uh, because we think it's such a significant book here at the bookstore. We have a, a gift giveaway uh, for the book. So if people enter at wtsbooks.com forward slash afterward, that's wtsbooks.com forward slash afterward, there are uh, 20 copies of uh, Seasons of Sorrow up for grabs. So do enter that uh, if you're in that place of sorrow yourself, or if you know of someone who would benefit from this book, uh, you can enter there at wtsbooks.com forward slash afterward. Um, Tim, it's been an honor to interview you and to chat to you about uh, this book and about your beautiful boy, Nick. I love the portrait at the back of the book um, that shows what a handsome young man he was. And uh, again, I'm very sorry that he's no longer with you and with Aileen and Abby and Michaela and also his fiance Rin. So our deepest yeah. sympathies to you again. Um, and uh, thank you for coming on uh, the show and being willing to invite us into such an intimate, private experience in your life. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. And thank you for finishing on what you did. The quote from John Brown says, ultimately, God did this. That was our conviction from the very beginning. It was nobody's will but God that Nick would live for as long as he did and go to be with Jesus when he did. And it's been our, our blessing then just to bow the knee to the Lord and say, he has done well. So I would like to close with this prayer by John Dunn, if that's okay. Uh, so let's pray. Bring us, O Lord God, at our last awakening into the house and gate of heaven to enter into that gate and dwell in that house where there shall be no darkness nor dazzling, but one equal light, no noise nor silence, but one equal music, no fears nor hopes, but one equal possession. No ends nor beginnings, but one equal eternity. In the habitation of thy glory and dominion, world without end. Amen. <laughs>